Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 44, titled Man on the Street, wherein we talk to the world's most ambitious cataloger of Big Bang. You'll see what I was doing there in just a minute. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. First off, I want to read a couple of emails about our episode that we call Demonstratively Speaking, in which we talked about the various ways that demonstratives, this, that, these, and those, can be used. The most common, of course, is to refer to something either near or far that is in the room and that you're pointing out to somebody else, this table, that chair. Another way is to refer back to something that was previously mentioned in the sentence. But the use that is most interesting and that several academics discovered was disproportionately used by none other than Sarah Palin is a use that was called emotional demonstrative or effective demonstrative. Do you remember what that sort of was? I do remember. It's where she would uh, use a pronoun and assume that we knew exactly what she was talking about and all the emotional freight that it was carrying. Yeah, you use this or that to introduce something that hasn't yet been brought up in the conversation as a way of fostering a sense of familiarity, solidarity, camaraderie around a set of attitudes or beliefs about that thing or that person. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're in this together. We know what we're talking about. Exactly. And my example, I think that I brought up to you was, I just saw the movie Her, Bob, that Scarlett Johansson, she sure has a sexy voice. It is a way of me sort of bringing you into this set of positive emotions that I have about her and assuming that you share them. And I do, although minus your level of, you know, heavy breathing. <laughs> so Edward Clorman wrote in to point out that, yes, my example of that Scarlett Johansson, as he put it, appeals to a shared set of positive emotions. But he points out that it can do the exact opposite. And Clorman suggests that this use of the emotional demonstrative in a kind of negative way, as he puts it, fosters a certain suspicion or skepticism, emphasizing that the person in question is not really known or may not be who he purports to be. Hmm. Now, it just so happens that another listener, Esther Hamori, who is an associate professor of Hebrew Bible at the Union Theological Seminary in Manhattan, she wrote in with an example that is exactly that, an emotional, effective demonstrative that conjures a negative set of emotions. So this is in chapter 32 of Exodus, when Moses is up on the mount getting those famous tablets from God, and down below, the Israelites are kind of hanging out, waiting for him. Aaron, Moses' brother, is sort of in charge, and an Israelite comes up to Aaron. He says, uh, hey, Aaron, let me talk to you a minute. <laughs> So uh, this Moses fella, your brother, he, uh, he's a no-show, and uh, we're getting restless here. You know, we're leaderless. We need something to worship here. Come on, throw us a bone, will you? 
So that is a paraphrasing. The accent, I understand, is pretty accurate. It's pretty authentic. No, Mike, that is so Phoenician Assyrian. That is not ancient Israel. Oh, my God. You, you so embarrass me. Well, here is a dramatic reading of the New International Version of the Bible of the chapter and verse, Exodus 32.1, in question. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets and finds that the Israelites are kind of singing and dancing. They've built a golden calf to worship, and he gets very angry, smashes the Ten Commandments, and calls out his brother. But in any case, I thought it was a great example of the emotional demonstrative. I guess Sarah Palin is in very good company, that of if, in fact, he did write the Bible of God himself. Or, or, she's the golden calf. Or or she's the golden calf. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So uh, one more letter, Barry Malavsky wrote in to say that his interpretation of Palin's use of this and that is not only as a device to be inclusive, but, he says, and I'll quote him, it also allows her to reference details she may not know and let her listener fill in the blanks by assumption. By using the pronouns to suggest we all know, she doesn't have to reveal that, in fact, she does not know. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there's uh, some evidence to suggest his interpretation may be exactly right. The uh, the category of things Sarah Palin doesn't know turns out to be pretty expansive. Yeah, I think there's more than some evidence. Okay, today's episode. Today's is about Jonathan Green and the work that he's been doing over the past 20 years plus. He is a British lexicographer who has become effectively the world's foremost cataloger of English slang. He has set out for himself a very ambitious task, and in 2010, he published what is called Green's Dictionary of Slang. It is 6,000 pages, three volumes, small print of all of the slang that he has thus far cataloged with the help of researchers who he pays. And he just recently, last week, published a book called The Vulgar Tongue, which is a distillation of that reference work into discrete narrative chapters that are thematically based. So we are going to talk to Jonathan Green about not only slang, but how he goes about his work. What does a lexicographer do? And how does a lexicographer, more specifically of slang, view that subset of the lexicon? Yeah, 6,000 pages is a whole mess of slang. There's no question about that. It's a lot of slang, and it's a lot of work, a lot of hours put in by not just Jonathan Green, but a lot of people, as I suggested. And it's reflected, I should say, in the price. This is not a cheap reference work. It sells on Amazon for 500 and something dollars. I think you could probably get it for around 450 new at some cheaper retailers, You know, this is something that if you have a several hundred dollars burning a hole in your pocket, it's an incredible investment if you really love words. If you don't, then, of course, the vulgar tongue, when I said it was more accessible, it's more accessible both as something to read, but also as something to buy. But in any case, let's bring Jonathan in. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I want to spend at least the first part of this conversation talking not 
necessarily about slang, but about you, because you're the impresario behind what is effectively the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED of slang. And as a reference work, it's fascinating. But as fascinating to me is the fact that you, Jonathan Green, exist, because slang has been a kind of monomania of yours for more than two decades, you've told me. And I wonder what motivates you, and as part of the answer to that question, talk, if you could, about what you think slang is and what its role is in the sort of wider English lexicon. I don't think we're born slang lexicographers. I mean, I could name, I would suggest, the 25 to 30 primary slang lexicographers who preceded me, the first of whom is in 1532, and we move on from there. And they all fall into it. The first one was a printer. The second one was a magistrate, sort of minor judge. Then there were some playwrights. Then there was somebody who was anonymous completely, just called himself gentleman, B.E. gentleman, and so on and so forth. And even my immediate predecessor, Eric Partridge, who did the Dictionary of Slang and Unconventional English and was undoubtedly the Mr. Slang, he was known as the word king of the 20th century, even he wanted to be a publisher. We sort of fall into it. Why do I like it? Well, I love the hunting aspect. I like cataloging these weird and wonderful words. It takes me to all these places in my research that I would never have otherwise known about. It also, I think, appeals to the voyeur in me, because, of course, I'm an appalling coward, and I can go to these places, these terrible criminal hangouts and these exciting brothels, whatever it may be, which, of course, I would run away a million miles in real life. Now, you have a posh accent. I I suspect that you have some sort of Oxbridge roots. I'm curious how you fall into the slang racket. How do you fall into the slang racket? I think of it more as a craft. Uh, not a trade, because we don't make any money, nor an art, indeed, but a craft. Eric Partridge, who I've just mentioned, my predecessor, was born in 1894. He came to Europe. He was a New Zealander, came to Europe, fought in World War One, and he fell in love with the Cockneys that he met, the soldiers that he met, and he fell in love with their language, and eventually he would become the great lexicographer of their language, slang. Partridge died in 79, old boy. And it was very obvious to me, reading his dictionary, which I loved and respected, he didn't get what we could call dope and sex and rock and roll. And even more importantly, he didn't get America. And he didn't get black America. And I, having been born in 1948 and been a bit of a hippie and involved in the counterculture and so on and so forth, I got all that stuff. And I could see that it was time that the slang that came out of that was brought into a dictionary. And that is probably the hard edge of why I went to a publisher and said, let me do this book. So, Jonathan, when you started out with what is now called the Green's Dictionary of Slang and runs some 6,000 pages, did you think I'm going to catalog every word of slang that has appeared down the centuries and throughout the English-speaking world and find citations for them all, which is something that you have pioneered, really, in dictionaries of slang. Was it that ambitious at the beginning? I think actually it was. Of course, you never know how long the piece of string you start pulling on is. I mean, my image actually is more you drop a stone into a pond and you start following the ripples. And those ripples have gone on perhaps much, much further than I would have ever ever dared admit to myself at the time. Basically, I did want very much, in quotes, to the equivalent of the Oxford English Dictionary of Slang, which is what's called on historical principles, which doesn't mean historical slang only, but it means you have these usage citations, these examples. And I was fortunate because I did a single volume book that came out in 1998, and my editor 
then said, if you want to do a book with citations, the one you fantasize about, I will let you do it, and I will give you an advance. And I went for it. So where did you start? We've discussed Cockney slang, which is very different from anything that we have on this side of the ocean. How did you decide where to begin? I was lucky because I'd done a single-volume book, which required reading a lot of stuff. So I had a reasonably large headword list. But when it came to citations, I looked up on my bookshelves, which unsurprisingly got a lot of texts that were slang-heavy. And the first one I took down was Jack Kerouac's On the Road. And I read it. And as I always say, I disemboweled it. I gutted it. And I took out all the examples. And then I moved on to another one. For the sake of example, let's say Charles Bukowski. Then I moved on to another one, maybe a book of Dickens. Okay, let me try and explain as briefly as possible, how I see slang. I don't see slang, although some of my colleagues do, as something you can define by rules. I think it's much more an atmosphere, an ambience, and the ambience is subversion, taking the piss, taking the mickey, undermining things. It's what I call, I've coined it, the counter-language, which is a direct tip of the hat to the old 60s counterculture. If you were to push it a little further, it's the equivalent in language of what Freud called the id. In other words, it's the linguistic expression of all those things we're not meant to feel, we're not meant to say, we're not meant to do, but they're the things that are buried or not so buried deep within us. And slang gives a voice to these negatives, to this id, to this unrestrained person. And very often explicitly criminal, right? Criminal is where it starts, undoubtedly. The first slang, you can't call it a dictionary, it's a glossary, came out in 1532, offers us about 20 words or so, of basically wandering criminal beggars. And it developed on that basis. And then it took really quite a long time till the end of the 17th century, 1698, before you're starting to see general words. But slang also, to me, has a very definite taxonomy, a very definite grouping, a list of themes. And indeed, right at the top of that list is crime and criminals. And it moves on to intoxication, to sex, to da 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 Well, let's talk about one of those most richly populated categories of slang, which is sexual intercourse. You have noticed a kind of thematic pattern stretching back in the slang of sex for many centuries. The dominant theme, I'm afraid, because what's going to come up in this conversation a lot is the man made side of slang, the male point of view, is if you want to look at what happens when a man and a woman are having sex, reduce it to one phrase, man hits woman. That sounds brutal, but I'm afraid it would appear from the language to be true. Now I've got 1,750 of these. There is a physical movement. There is also the slap, the onomatopoeic, the echoic sound of flesh slapping flesh. If you take the word fuck, Fuck comes from a variety of Germanic words that basically mean to hit and to move backwards and forwards. And it's interesting that if you look at one of the earliest uses of fuck, which is in the dictionary of 1598, it's an Italian to English dictionary, four words. The Italian is fotuere, and it's jape, swive, sard, and fuck. Now, why is it that jape and swive and sard vanished, but fuck has lasted? Fuck is dominant. It's the word most people see as being slang. And I would suggest it's because it has this echoic 
slapping of flesh sound, as well as the fact that behind that is this striking and this physical moving backwards and forwards. You look at another word that's early, wop, W-A-P, wop. It's man hitting woman, it's flesh hitting flesh. And certainly, you know, I don't know how early some of these more modern terms date, but bang, screw, hammer, these are all euphemisms for sex. What I call the carpenter's intercourse, yes. Bang and screw and nail and poke and hammer, they're straight out of the carpenter's toolbox. And what is the word tool but um, a pertinent one and toolbox itself? Along those lines, two very broad categories in your taxonomy of slang, as you sort of alluded to, are men and women. And not invariably, but quite often, quite frequently, the terms to describe a man are very much of one variety, and those for a woman are, let's say, belittling, objectifying, or sexualizing. Women are always objects. They are never subjects. Things are done to women by men. If you wanted to take two words that, to me, sum it all up, the man which means a powerful, strong, important man, and as we know it, can often mean the police or something like that. And what is the single word that most used for women? Bitch. You know, when you start looking for words for powerful man, you'll get stud and big chief and big dog with the brass collar, and then you get sort of weird psychotics like half horse, half alligator, which is supposed to be a good thing, I guess. If you look at woman, you cannot find in my definitions powerful woman, strong woman, important woman. You find sexy and attractive woman, 120 variations, promiscuous woman, 200. We won't even cross the line into prostitution. But there's nothing or virtually nothing that sets the woman up as an autonomous, important, powerful, strong subject. That woman does not really exist in slang. Having said that, um, I came across a wonderful word. There's 1,500 words for penis, and I came across this lovely word, clatter de vengeance. Now, it's a good penis word. It's like a lot of penis words. It's to do with what I always call toys for boys, guns and knives and clubs and daggers. And this clatter de vengeance sort of has this idea of this some kind of weapon. But in 1659, we have a magazine that's talking about Dick, well-named, of course, who decides to go into the local tavern and give the girls a hard time. But as it says, one of the impudent sluts running her hand between Dick's legs took fast hold of his clattered of vengeance and called for a knife to cut it off. And the story continues from there. But that is a relatively rare event in slang. Does this have anything to do with the nature of slang? Or is it more have to do with who's writing the slang. Is this uh, strictly the province of men, the coinage of these terms? One of the problems I have is trying to find women authors from whom I can extract material. And even these days, it's much, still much harder. Now, this may be my failure. I would be the first to admit it. There's an awful lot of stuff out there, and I don't pretend to get it all. But it is still predominantly a male-orientated language. All right, we'll be back in a minute after a short break. I am so thrilled to welcome The Great Courses as our sponsor. This is a company whose core proposition that the desire to learn doesn't stop after college could not be more resonant with this program, Lexicon Valley. The Great Courses offers audio and video lectures taught by top professors from top universities around the country. Of particular interest to listeners of this podcast is a course called The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. It's taught by Anne Curzan. She's a professor of linguistics at the University of Michigan, who, incidentally, has been a guest on this show. Her lectures are thoughtful, 
engaging, and packed with fascinating and even surprising revelations about the English language. For example, English is considered a Germanic language, of course, and sure enough, of the 1,000 most common words, more than 80% are derived from German. But if you look at the next 1,000 most common words, it's less than 40% from German. That's because we borrow so many words from so many different languages, and that's essentially what this course is about. It's really interesting. If you order The Secret Life of Words right now using the URL thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon, you'll get 80% off the original price. There are lectures on more than 500 topics from the hard sciences to the social sciences to photography and history. You can watch them or simply listen to them on any device. Remember, the 80% off deal only applies to the secret life of words and is only available for a limited time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, back to our talk with Jonathan Green. You mentioned earlier that your predecessor didn't get American slang, and by get meaning didn't capture any of it, and also probably didn't get it in the other sense of the word, and in particular didn't get African-American slang. Is it fair to say, I mean, from my perspective as somebody who grew up here in the States, it seems to me that over the past 50 to 75 years, African-Americans have had a wildly disproportionate influence on the English language, at least in North America, and on slang in particular. There's no argument with that whatsoever. I mean, it as a huge generalization, but like all generalizations with a little bit of quite a lot of truth in it, we all speak black American now. You can see a progression in the actual generation of the slang itself, as I say, in which the lyrics of, that are around blues, you've got things like prison toasts, you've got the ritualized insulting thing called the dozens. These were internal black things, but they are bringing us gradually, but absolutely unavoidably and progressively towards hip-hop and towards rap. And hip-hop and rap are all around the world. I feel you. <laughs> and I would say that in the first place that the hip-hop rap lexicon is the most accessible lexicon that people, young people particularly around the world have. And what they're doing is they're localizing it. And what in the UK we have is something called MLE, multi-ethnic London English. And it's fascinating because it's more than ever, it's crossed color, it's crossed culture, it's crossed class. It's this mixture of African-American slang, old-fashioned Cockney slang, Jamaican slang, which came over, of course, with our Jamaica, the people that work with me now, talking about third-generation immigrants from Jamaica, a little bit of India and Pakistan, because, of course, there's immigrants from there, and bits of stuff that's just made up. And so you get a word like bear, which starts off life in Barbados. It means nothing, but then it becomes too much of. But now young people say bear dope or something like that, which means a lot of drugs. Or there's nang which means first rate, means excellent, comes from nyanga, which is an African word from Mende, and what it originally meant was showing off, particularly in the way you dressed, that moved into being a smart person, and by the time it gets to multi-ethnic London English, it's become stylish, and in general, good. I must ask you, uh, my first uh, source, my go-to, to understand some of this hip-hop slang and other contemporary Coinages is the Urban Dictionary, and I know you're very rigorous about what you do, and I'm, I'm curious whether that makes you cringe or sniff or just what to hear me say that. 
I had the pleasure of meeting the man who started that off, and, I, and he was delightful, and we had a long conversation about it. I think the problem with the Urban Dictionary is it's not what I would call a dictionary. I'm not even sure to what extent it's urban. And I think it's interesting that it used to have a reference to slang in its sort of online title, which has been dropped. From my point of view, yes, it is not rigorous. I believe that a dictionary, even a slang dictionary, perhaps especially a slang dictionary, has to have a degree of authority because otherwise why are you using it? And a situation where you, everything is judged by thumbs ups and thumbs down as it is in the urban dictionary is a problem, I think, for those who go to it to find that authority. But it's an amazing collection of words. We have another much tinier thing in the UK which is called Roger's Profanosaurus, which as you'll realize is a, is a piss take <laughs> of Roger's Thesaurus. And that's, again, hilarious, wonderful words, wonderful words. But how many of them really would qualify in a slang dictionary? I'm not sure. The Urban Dictionary is very useful. I use it as well, I assure you. I, I would be very foolish to be sniffy about it. But if you consider a dictionary to require authority that the user can trust, the Urban Dictionary does not have that. I totally agree with you, Jonathan. It's too uncurated for me. But you've mentioned a couple times Cockney as a slang. And, you know, those of us in the States, there are many who are probably not familiar with what's called rhyming slang. You know, if slang is a lexicon of the marginalized and the economically disadvantaged, certainly Cockneys are of that political and social group in England. So tell us what exactly is rhyming slang and how did it really come about in the first place, if we know how it came about? As far as we know, rhyming slang starts to emerge around 1830. And it is interesting in many ways, but one of the main ways to me is that it was a conscious decision, as it were, on behalf of a marginalized group to create a slang because the previous slang was now understood by the police. It's difficult these days in such lightning-fast communications to believe that anything is secret. We know secrecy, privacy, secrecy is, is kind of a thing of the past. But there is a theory in slang that the out-group whichever it is, should not understand it. And back in 1830, this was something you could do realistically. Now, it may have been Irish people coming to England who invented it. It may have been what were called the navvies, the navigators, and what they're navigating was building canals and later railways. But the most likely is that it was the Cockney market sellers. And they invented this stuff. What is rhyming slang? Well, the basic one is you start off, it's usually X plus Y equals Z. And the X may be apples, and the Y is pears, so Z is stairs. Or saucepan lids, which is kids, children. Trouble and strife, which is wife. But you don't say apples and pears, you just say apples. That's all you get. You, you never say the rhyming bit. In my opinion, it's become a bit touristy. It's a bit like black taxi cabs, red buses, <laughs> the idea that the police don't carry weapons. You mean things that we imagine about London but have essentially disappeared? If not disappeared, then become very banal, yes. We have a situation where, I mean, I, I presume Victoria Beckham, the former posh spice, is, and her husband David Beckham are known in the States. And so you get a situation that posh and becks means sex. Well, when I come across that, I think I'm not sure whether I love my slang as much as I used to. Um, <laughs> it's, but they are, as I say, well, I would call them D-list celebs. But every footballer, soccer player has these things, so on and so forth. Sometimes it can be really sophisticated. Well, let's not say sophisticated, but fun. So there's a word bottle. And bottle, by the way, is something you lose or you can bottle out. So this is how it works. Bottle is short for the rhyming slang bottle and glass. 
Bottle and glass rhymes with ass. Ass means bottom. Bottom in posterior. Bottom in slang, at least in the 18th century, meant courage. So if you lose your bottle, you lose your courage. You're a coward. Oh, for heaven's sake. And this is the mystery of rhyming slang. Because when the slang is explained, you can follow the steps and go, oh, I see. No, I got it. That makes perfect sense. But what I don't understand is how anyone in the moment, in a conversation, could ever walk back through the maze enough to find the source. How is that done? Well, in the first place, they wouldn't bother. They wouldn't bother. They just used it. They picked it up. I mean, one of the more obscene ones is the word Burke, B-E-R-K. Millions of people use it. Burke, it means a fool, means an idiot. But what does it mean? What does it come from? It comes from the Berkeley Hunt. And you can work out what the Berkeley Hunt rhymes with. Wait, let me, wait, let me try this one. Berkeley Hunt, um, Yerkley? Am I warm? You're not even, you're not, you're not even in the room. Um, that's a Berkeley Hunt. Some people say Berkshire Hunt. And there are a number of words in which the vagina equals a fool. But there are lots of people from the top downwards or bottom upwards, slang tends to come from the bottom upwards, who will say Burke, and just like Bottle, have not the first idea what they're actually saying. Jonathan, what is your actual day-to-day like? Over 20 years, 6,000 pages, describe for me what I'm likely to see if I were to witness you at work during the week. What would you be doing if you weren't talking to me right now? What you'd see is a man with less and less hair reading, in, in, a, in a phrase. I don't do field work, because field work's great, and I'm full of admiration, but people don't talk in citations. They don't say, you know, this is Jonathan Green, such and such a book, page 42, and here's the line. It doesn't work that way. So I read. Now, I and my researchers, because I, be, I would be the first to say I have not done this single-handedly, I've probably read 8,000 books and on top of which we've read a lot of newspapers, magazines, journals, etc. So I do read, but I could be reading a run of tweets. I could be reading a set of blogs. I could be reading a bunch of film scripts, TV scripts, lyrics from songs, texts from ads maybe. In other words, I have to read because I need the citation, but the range of the reading is just enormous. Before me, someone like Partridge, he didn't do citations, and I think one of the reasons was the problem of actually finding the material. My problem is not finding it. It's saying, okay, Jonathan, you have in front of you the entirety of the hip-hop lyric canon, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of songs. Where do you dare stop reading them because you can't read them all? Last year, I, I watched the whole of The Wire for citations. It took me a month. It was great fun, but I didn't watch it as others watch it, I can assure you. (laughs) By the way, that's where I got I Feel You. Quite honestly, my image is of myself attacking a granite mountain with a plastic spoon, but I'll do my best. You said uh, very early on in this conversation that you really enjoy the hunt. I can just imagine, but what is the feeling when you happen upon a citation for a word that is much earlier than any previous citation or that you much earlier than you thought the word even existed? The feeling is wonderful. I mean, the first rule is it's always older than you think. But let me give you an example, which is the word dis. Now, I don't know when you would guess dis was first used. Dis as in disrespect in hip-hop as slang. As in disrespect. And what group created it? I mean... I, I guess I would guess 1970s black American or maybe like Bronx American. 
you know, that would be my guess, but I'm guessing now that I would be wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm reading a newspaper called the Sunday Times of Perth from Western Australia, and I am reading the 1904 editions. I am reading a poem which Journalist A, a rather bad doggerel poem, which he's written about Journalist B, and the guy is using the word diss, don't diss me. And, you know, the neon lights up. (laughs) Fireworks go off. (laughs) I mean, it's remarkable, because the next citation I have is 1981. And, of course, you're absolutely right, from African-American use and so on and so forth. Now, the problem then, because you look at it and you turn it upside down and you turn it inside out and you shake it and you say, it can't be, it can't be, it can't be. But the fact is that it is. Then you've got to say, okay, we now have between 1904 and 1981 70 odd years. Now, where are the other examples? That's the next thing to start searching for. There is an enormous, well, you know, I don't expect everybody would feel this, but for me, there's an enormous joy in finding something like that. Since the print dictionary came out, Green's Dictionary of Slang in 2010, I've probably revised 25% of it. And I think, among other things, probably found six or 7,000 predates of what I had. Some of them a year, but some of them 100 years. Wow. Jonathan, as somebody scooping at a granite mountain with a plastic spoon, I think you put it, you will surely die before this work is complete. I'm thinking of the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, where Willy Wonka kind of taps Charlie Bucket as his successor to run the chocolate factory. How did you like the chocolate factory, Charlie? I think it's the most wonderful place in the whole world. I'm very pleased to hear you say that, because I'm giving it to you. It's all right, isn't it? You're giving Charlie the... I can't go on forever, and I don't really want to try. First of all, can I be that person? And if not, who is? Who have you tapped to be your... I, I, I mean, it's a very, very good and very important question. And in my opinion, what I need, and I am looking around for this, is some kind of academic partner who would perhaps help work this one out. I mean, there are two things you're touching on here. One is, yes, there has to be, let's be big-headed and call it a legacy, and that legacy has got to be left to someone. And the other thing, of course, is that, I mean, I will do it until I crash forward, as far as I'm concerned, onto the keyboard or whatever technology is providing us with. But the truth is that I'm 66, and next year I will be 67. Slang, of course, is about 16, and next year slang will still be 16, and the year after. And the problem is that the gap between slang and this old man trying to catalog it gets bigger and bigger. So I certainly need someone else to do it. I would hate to see it all stop. Jonathan, this has been so fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jonathan Green is the author of Green's Dictionary of Slang, which you can buy on Amazon or other retailers. And more recently, as of last week, The Vulgar Tongue. (laughs) You know, Mike, I noticed we just spoke to Jonathan Green for more than a half an hour, I think, before edits. And except for when he was explicitly citing slang words, he never spoke in slang, not once. It was all the King's English. (laughs) Well, you did at one point in the interview, I think, Bob, presume that he had an Oxbridge education. That is, in fact, true. I don't think he copped to it, but he did go to Oxford. He's a, a man of some considerable academic pedigree, so... And a whole lot of fucking erudition. That's true. That's true. And, you know, I wasn't kidding. I Maybe I'll vie for that spot as his successor. I thought that was exactly what you were doing. And uh, truthfully, Mike, I wasn't sure whether you were after his role 
as the world's leading lexicographer uh, of slang or his pied a terre in Paris, uh, which you expressed some interest in <laughs> off mic. I, I'm not sure what your motives are, but in either case, I don't, I don't think you're any closer to being his successor than you were an hour ago. I want it all. I just, I want his whole life. That's what I want. I want his <laughs> life back and forth between London and Paris. I want his bookish existence surrounded by thousands of books. I just, I want it all. I, want I understand, all. although, and I don't know this, I have no evidence, but in my mind's eye, he is a man who is hobbled by gout. So, <laughs> no, no chance. You know what he should do? He should issue golden tickets, just like in Willy Wonka, hide them in, I don't know, reference works around the world. And the lucky five winners get to appear on some reality show to vie f- for his life to be his successor. Yeah. And if your luck's running high, you'll get one of the golden tickets. And if you're really uh, rolling sevens, another golden ticket will be won by Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> yeah, we could be like the lexicography team. Uh, Mike and Scarlett. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I think my my wife and child and dog might miss me, though. And I would miss yeah. them. All right. And so, I also think that probably Scarlett uh, wouldn't be able to tolerate. In any case, if you want to write to us, you can do so at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed in the iTunes store. You can find us by searching for Lexicon Valley there. I want to thank Jonathan Green. Go out and buy his very impressive reference work, Green's Dictionary of Slang. Like I said, if you have several hundred dollars lying around. If not, check out The Vulgar Tongue. And I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast. All right, Mikey, we done here? Yeah, we're done, you Burke. <laughs> hey, I, I have decoded that. Uh, <laughs> later, Gator. But Charlie, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted. What happened? He lived happily ever after.